Welcome to the Claremont County Public Library's Book Lovers Podcast. I'm your host today. My name is Stacy, and I'm joined by two youth services librarians, Kara and Hi. Christine. Hi. Hi, guys. During this episode, we're going to discuss the Newberry Award. We're really excited. We're going to talk about the criteria used by the Newberry Committee. And our two guests are going to discuss their predictions for the 2022 Newberry Award. Remember that show notes with links to all of the titles we talk about is available at claremontlibrary.org. And I'm going to kick things off and talk a little bit about what the Newberry Award is and about the exciting anniversary coming up. So this is the first in a series of four podcasts that we're doing to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Newberry Award. So just a little bit about the creation of the award. First of all, the Newberry Medal is given by the Association for Library Service to Children, which is a division of the American Library Association. And it is given to the author of, quote, the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children, end quote. And it's given to books that were published the previous year. So the 2022 award will go to books published in 2020. Some quick history. In 1921, Publishers Weekly editor Frederick Melcher proposed the award to the American Library Association meeting of the Children's Librarian Section and suggested that it be named for the 18th century English bookseller John Newberry. The idea was enthusiastically accepted by the Children's Librarians, and Melcher's official proposal was approved by the American Library Association Board in 1922. The Newberry Award thus became the very first children's book award in the world. From the beginning of the awarding of the Newberry Medal, committees could and usually did cite other books as worthy of attention. So such books were referred to as Newberry runners-up, but in 1971, the term runners-up was changed to honor books. And actually, a lot of my favorites are not Newberry medals, they're Newberry honor books. So we'll be talking about that a little bit too. So that new terminology was made retroactive, and that allowed all the former runners-up to now be referred to as Newberry honor books. So listeners, if you heard me say at the beginning and you paid attention to the date of the first Newberry Medal, it was awarded in 1922, you'll realize that 2022 marks the 100th anniversary. So the Association for Library Service to Children says about this anniversary, quote, this anniversary commemorates not only a century of captivating books, it celebrates the longevity and evolution of the award. The world has changed in the last 100 years and with it, the Newberry Medal seeks to recognize stories that represent and respect all you, end quote. I think all children's librarians are excited for this historic anniversary and perhaps none more than our two guests today. So next, Kara has some great information about how each year's Newberry Committee is formed and the criteria that they use to choose winners. Thanks so much for having us, Stacy, and for saying how excited we are about the Newberry. <laughs> it's true. Consider myself a Newberry nerd. I always read all the books that might be up for the medal every year. So yeah. I love to talk about the Newberry. So the process and information about the committee is pretty complicated. So if anybody wants to delve into that, that is on the American Library Association's website. You can check out their Newberry manual there, which is about 70 pages of dense information. 
so I tried to narrow it down into just the basics to give an overview. So every year they pick a new committee to choose the Newberry Medal. So you never really know what you're going to get because they all kind of start from scratch other than that manual. Because everything's confidential, you don't know what the previous committee talked about or how they made their choices, which is a really cool way to go about it because every year's awards are really different based on that committee. So they start the process over every year in January at the ALA's midwinter meeting. That's when the new committee meets. And that's also when they're awarding that year's awards. So that committee is kind of ending their term and the new committee is coming on. And every committee is made up of 15 members. They're all members of that group that Stacy mentioned, the Association for Library Service to Children. And they make nominations all year long for books that they think should be considered. So they're kind of in constant communication with each other, whether that be in the past they communicated by mail. Recently, they've had to do it virtually because of the pandemic. Usually they're meeting in person if they can, but of course they can be from all over the country. I think they've probably always done a mix of different ways of communicating, but they do have a couple meetings that are required. So that first midwinter is not required, but the one where they're announcing the award is required for them. And then they also have one in the summer, which is kind of their midway point where they're about to start their formal nomination process. So there's more details about how complicated that is in the manual, if you care to take a look at that. And then at their midwinter, where they're announcing the awards, they have their formal balloting process where they vote on books. They're assigned a number of points based on what rank the choice is for each book. And so that decides the winners. And then for the honors, they don't have to name any honors. If they felt there were other books that were distinguished, they could use those. They don't have to be books that were runners up in the balloting process. They can start the voting process over. So that's interesting. And then when you're talking about the runners up, those were listed in order of preference. And now that they've gone to honors, they're actually just listed in alphabetical orders. They all have equal weight, which I thought was an interesting point that they made, that none of them are are ranked better than the others. So they can consider all eligible books that are published in that year that they're working with for ages 0 to 14. So that includes over 5,000 trade titles, according to the uh, manual. I think they read a lot less than that. I've heard committees say that it's hundreds. I don't think they're able to read thousands. So they probably kind of give a cursory overview of different books and then decide which ones they actually want to read in full. The author has to be a U.S. citizen or a resident for at least six months out of the year, and it has to be an original work. They cannot consider the author's previous works. They can only consider illustrations and other features if they detract from the text. So the text is really what they're considering. So because of that, they can consider all forms of writing. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a novel. It could be poetry plays. As we've seen, it can be picture books and graphic novels because those contain texts as well. And then they specifically state in the manual that it's not an award for didactic content or popularity. So they're really looking for, as you mentioned, Stacey, the most distinguished, which they do give a definition of. They do have some guidelines to go by that says that it has to be marked by eminence and distinction, noted for significant achievement, excellence and quality, and individually distinct. And then when they're looking at the distinguished contribution, they have further criteria. So they have to consider the interpretation of theme or concept, presentation of information, including accuracy, clarity, and organization, development of a plot, delineation of characters, delineation of a setting and appropriateness of style. But it's interesting that it does point out that they do not expect the committee to find excellence in all of the named elements. So it's not necessary that it has 
all of those things, just some of them, but still, any way you look at it, it's an enormous undertaking. I don't know how even 15 people can look at all of children's literature just for a year. I've heard that they spend the entire year reading, rereading, and evaluating, and probably taking time off work. A lot of them work full-time as librarians, professors, teachers, but having to take vacations just to read, which sounds fantastic, but I've heard committee members say you really get into a different mindset, so it's really not reading for enjoyment. They really do take their tasks seriously, so that's a lot of work. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully that would count as continuing education, maybe, and I just I can't. I can't imagine that they have to take their own vacation days. That doesn't sound like fun at all. (laughs) It sounds like work, like you said. Yes. So we're going to spend the rest of the podcast sharing our predictions for the 2022 medal, which is awarded for a book published in 2021. So that counts up through December 31st. So there are books that are still coming out that could be considered in that poor committee's scrambling as they do every year to try to get their hands on all these books. Publishers do send them books, but I'm sure they still try to seek out others. So today we're going to look at traditional Newbery books, which are middle grade novels, meaning that they're published and intended for children ages nine through 12. And then in another podcast, we're going to look at what we consider non-traditional titles, such as picture books and nonfiction, which are just as eligible, but have historically been considered far less often for Newbery recognition, although we're seeing them a lot more often in recent years. So the committee is definitely widening their net, but I'm going to turn it over to Christine for her first pick. So as you mentioned, Kara, there are so many books out there and I have been reading voraciously, but I feel like I have barely scratched the surface. So I'm going to talk about some of the books that I chose that I think are strong Newberry contenders, but at the same time, I keep running across new titles that I'm like, ooh, that one could be uh, a possible contender as well. So the first book I chose today is called The Lion of Mars by Jennifer L. Holm. And this is a science fiction book, hence the title Lion of Mars. The The story follows a boy, 11-year-old Bill, who has basically spent his entire life growing up on the planet Mars. He lives with a very small group of other kids and adults on the American colony on Mars. Other countries like France have colonies as well, but the Americans are forbidden from having any contact with the other colonies. So they're kind of isolated by them. And as the story goes, we see that presents a problem when all of the adults in the American colony start becoming ill with some mysterious virus. And it's up to Belle and the other kids to try and figure out how they can save the adults, how they can keep the colony running and essentially save themselves. And they soon realize that they're not going to be able to do it alone, that if they want to save the adults, the colonies and themselves, they're going to have to venture out and make contact with those other colonies, essentially breaking the rules. I think this is a great book. I think the author does a fantastic job of describing what life on Mars would be like. Obviously, nobody has actually set up a colony there, but she just gives great descriptions of kind of what Mars looks like, what their colony, which is actually in underground lava tubes, looks like and how it functions day to day so that they can actually survive in a very inhospitable climate. So I think she really does a great job, among other things, of kind of describing that setting. And so this is my first choice of what we're going to talk about today for Newberry Contender. Interesting. I feel like that's a good pick for reluctant readers too, because it has 
yeah, like that sci-fi spin and maybe a little bit of adventure. So. It's definitely got a good bit of adventure, a little bit of mystery even. There's a cat persistent throughout that in my mind is quite adorable. So I think there's a lot of things that would appeal to a lot of readers, including those reluctant readers. Yeah, awesome. I agree. I loved that one. I thought that it definitely had kid appeal, which is something that I always look for when I'm reading Newberry picks, even though that's not something the committee looks for. So it's kind of the distinction between they're supposed to look for, you know, it's written for a child audience, which it can be and also be very boring to a child. So it's written on their level, but it's not necessarily appealing to them and they don't need to look for child appeal. But I always look for that when I'm reading because I feel like it's kind of, it can be great but then at the same time I need books that I can promote to actual kids too (laughs) yeah and I I think of several that I've read and I'm going to talk about I think that one has maybe the widest range of appeal I think a lot of kids that are interested in different things would really enjoy that book yeah Agreed. All right. Well, my first book is totally different, I would say, because it's very heavy topic and it's realistic fiction, which is what I tend to read. And we've seen as what the committee tends to award is for realistic and historical fiction, which are two of my favorites. So maybe that's why I love the Newberry or part of it. But Jasmine Warga was awarded the Newberry Honor a couple of years back for the 2020 award for her book, Other Words for Home, which is actually set in Cincinnati. It's a novel verse. If you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. So she definitely has the chops for it, but because the committees can't consider their past works, it doesn't mean she's a shoe in at all. But I, I just think she's a fantastic author. As I mentioned, the story is very heavy. I think it's really timely for sure. So it deals with the aftermath of a school shooting. And I think having that kind of distance in the aftermath is probably one of the things that makes it appropriate for a middle grade audience. Although we know any student who's in school is dealing with active shooter drills on a yearly basis. So it's their reality for sure. But you're not seeing the actual shooting in the text. It's been a year since it happened. And these two friends on the cover, Cora and Quinn, they used to be best friends. They're next door neighbors, but they're so closely involved in the shooting that that's caused a rift in their friendship. So Cora's sister, Mabel, was shot um, in the school shooting. And then Quinn's brother is the one who committed the crime. And she feels guilt about it because she saw him with guns and didn't say anything about it. So definitely very heavy topics. It does have a little bit of a sci-fi twist. So the plot of it is that they haven't spoken in a year, but Quinn reaches out to Cora because she wants to try to be friends again. And she thinks maybe they can try to fix it with time travel. So they're trying to figure out how they can get back and change what happened. So I think the way that she develops the characters is really distinguished and also just her writing style is just wonderful, but they each have their own distinct voice and it goes back and forth between their perspectives. So I would recommend this one for ages 11 and up. Wow. I feel like that would be a really good pick for middle school book clubs. For sure. Even early high school book clubs. I mean, just with the content. 
And she's a Cincinnati native, right? Jasmine O'Rourke. She grew up. I understand. She doesn't live here anymore, but yeah. Yeah. That'd be very cool though, if she won another award. Yes, definitely. I think it would be great for a book club. I think there's a lot of, a lot of points for discussion in that one, but I thought it was a really strong book. I would hate to be on the Newberry committee because all of these that we're talking about, I think are are great and kind of have different things that they excel at, but I, I really enjoyed that one. It's a little heavier topic, but I thought she handled it really well. My next book kind of goes off on a completely different genre, and it is Amber and Clay by Laura Amy Schultz. And I tend to read more realistic and historic fiction. And so I put this one off for a long time. It's not my typical genre. And as you can see, it looks like a pretty thick book. It's huge. <laughs> it is huge. And, but it kept getting a lot of buzz. And so I was like, I'm going to read it. And I'm going to read it. I'll, I'll get to it. And so I finally did. And I have to say, I really am glad that I did. I thought this was a really unique and interesting book. So this is what they call an epic story. And it really is epic set in ancient Greece. And it follows the lives of a boy named Raskos, who is very artistic, but he is a slave boy in Greece. And it follows another girl named Melly Stowe, who is actually part of an aristocratic family in Greece. So it kind of follows their two parallel lives that don't seem like they're going to have any connection, but they become linked together by the gods in this story. Laura did a fabulous job of researching the story, pulling on that ancient Greek mythology, and she did it in a really unique way. This story combines verse and prose, and each section starts with an artifact that's been discovered, and there is a picture of the artifact. And so she shows the artifact, she describes the artifact kind of like you would see in a museum exhibit. And then she goes on to tell the story behind that artifact. And there's a lot going on in the story, but she does a great job of linking it all together. And it's a very compelling story. I think it will keep your attention. I would say this kind of leans more on the older end of the Newberry. As Tara said, it's Newberry considers anything from zero up to 14. So I think this is going to lean more towards that older end, 10 to 14, maybe. She did a great job in how she presented her information in a really unique way. It's fiction, but it still has a bibliography. So very well researched with accurate information. I think she's got a strong shot, again, just because of really the uniqueness and the way she laid it out. I thought she did a really excellent job at that. So that is another one of my possible contenders, Amber and Clay. That's awesome. I feel like that'd be a good choice for those readers who really want an epic read, like you said, and they want to really be immersed in, in the story and the world, and they want a lot into the meat of the story. So sounds like it's a good pick. Yeah. So, like I said, I surprisingly, I enjoyed it. If I wasn't trying to read for the Newberry, I probably would have never picked it up. So I'm glad, glad that I did. Good. You've maybe convinced me. I don't know. <laughs> that one was on my radar. I picked it up and looked at the first couple of pages and I was like, I don't think I'm the reader for this. <laughs> I will say it took a little bit to get into, but once I got into the story, I had to keep, I actually listened to it. I had to keep listening to see what was going to happen next. Give it a chance. I, I'd say. Yeah. 
Well, my next one is The Beatrice Prophecy by Kate DiCamillo. So this is her brand new book that just came out, I believe in September of 2021, toward the end of the year, but I'm sure the committee will take a look at it because Kate DiCamillo is absolutely no stranger to the Newberry. She has won two Newberry medals in the past, which is the most that anyone's ever won. She's not the only person to have done it. She's one of six people who have won the Newberry medal twice, but no one's ever won more than that. She was a Awarded the medal in 2004 for the Tale of Despero and again in 2014 for Flora and Ulysses. Um, and she also has a Newbery honor to her name for her first book, Because of Win Dixie, which I think is probably her most beloved, which was all the way back in 2001. So she's been around for a really long time. She's one of my favorite authors. I always feel like she can do no wrong. I mean, she's branched out into early chapter books, picture books. She's got all kinds of stuff out there, kind of in different genres too. But, you know, she just keeps coming up with new stuff because this one's totally different for her, I would say. Maybe a little bit of flavor of Despero to it. It feels like it's set in the past, although I saw an interview with her and she kind of said it's timeless. It doesn't really have a setting. It definitely feels medieval. So the title, The Beatrice Prophecy, refers to the main character, Beatrice, who's a girl who's not supposed to be able to read and write, but she can. Her family taught her how it was important to them, but society says that she's not supposed to. So that makes her very dangerous. And she was actually supposed to be killed. And some of her family members were, but she escaped and she finds herself at a monastery. And so there's a monk that's a character. And there's also this demon goat, Answelica. So she brings a lot of humor to the story as well. So I think she always does a really good job of balancing that. She usually has some kind of serious bent to her story, but she always works hoping. There's definitely not any that I feel like are are dark stories and humor as in with the goat in this one and I always find it interesting she always seems to work in some kind of food I feel like that way of comforting her characters they kind of always go back to that so in this one there's these maple candies that the monk has and he keeps giving them to Beatrice and then she goes off on her journey and he packs some for her and she finds them later so just kind of a a simple way and I think a lot of us use food for comfort right so it makes sense to a lot of people I think and of course this one is illustrated by Sophie Blackall, who I absolutely adore, and she's a Caldecott medal winner. So that's kind of the Newberry equivalent for illustrations. So this one has illustrations of the characters and the goat. Here's two of the characters, Jack, Dory, and Beatrice. So Jack's a boy that pops up in the story that Beatrice finds on her way. And then there's the goat trying to get to them. So the goat adores Beatrice, but other people she's not so fond of. <laughs> so they have to be careful of the goat. So yeah, the only concern of mine, which I mentioned earlier, is kid appeal on this one, which the committee doesn't look at at all. So they don't they don't care. It's definitely written in a style for a child audience. I worry that that kids, I mean, obviously Kate DiCamillo, a lot of them will know who that is. So that'll help. But, you know, to for me, if you tried to sell it to me and you said, well, it's set in medieval times and there's a monk who's a character and they go on this journey, I'd be like, I don't know about that. So that's the only thing that kind of made me hesitate to promote it to kids. I think you really just have to talk it up. You know, teachers and librarians will have to sell it or read it aloud. It's definitely a way of getting them engaged. But once they get into it, her language is always very economic, I would say. Her sentences seem simple, but she just manages to put them forth in such a way that there's a lot of emotion in them. And she just always does a great job. So definitely recommend that one. I think to sell to the kids, you just got to sell them on the goat. The kids will be hooked and they'll, they'll want to find out more about that. (laughs) 
demon yes. goat. Did I hear you correctly? Did you say demon goat? Yes, that is what they call her at some okay. points because she likes to to headbutt people. So she sends them flying and she's <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> the monk actually says that he has a hoof print that stayed on his chest. Like it's a oh. permanent mark on him <laughs> from his encounter with the goat in a beautiful meadow that he describes all the flowers and stuff. But then he had the encounter with the goat. <laughs> it, was, it was very dangerous. So yeah, she's definitely oh. scarred people, but she loves Beatrice so I feel like a good goat at heart if all else fails if you can't hook a reader with any of the other wonderful things you said about the book just say demon goat and see (laughs) how many children will want to read it then so awesome all right well my final choice today is called red white and whole and this is realistic fiction so this is kind of more my typical genre but it is also considered historic fiction because it is set in the 80s which I don't know how I feel about that but I think this of the three I've talked about this is probably one of my favorites so this story follows 13 year old Reha and she is an Indian American girl and she's trying to fit in. She wants to be a typical American teenager. She's in junior high and just wants to, you know, kind of fit in with all of her friends at school. But yet at the same time, she wants to please her Indian parents who are very, very strict, especially compared to typical American parents. And so while she's trying to navigate all of this and figure out where she fits in, her mom becomes very ill and is diagnosed with cancer. So now she's got to try and deal with that on top of everything else. And this book is a really powerful book, a bit of a tearjerker. It's much shorter than most of the other ones I've talked about, but the author, Rajani LaRocca, she expresses things in such a beautiful way. And she draws from her own background. She is Indian. She was born in India and she's also a medical doctor. So she draws on that background to kind of tie it together. All these themes of trying to figure out who you are, family, friendship, loss, and grief using different metaphors with blood. And she ties in some Indian folktale as well, just to show how, even though we're all made up of many parts, we can still be whole. And I just thought this was a great book. I know a lot of books this year for the Newberry are written in verse. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see how they all compare, but I really enjoyed this book. I think kids, kind of middle grade kids will be able to relate with that whole idea of fitting in, even if they may not be from another country or their parents from another country. Those middle grade years, I think all kids kind of deal with that. Where do I fit in? So I think this is a great book. I hope it gets some Newberry attention. And I think as Kara had mentioned one time, an email, the little circle there in Hull would be a great place to put the Newberry medal. That is Red, White, and Hull. Yeah, I loved that one too. I listened to it and I feel like it feels very current, even though she definitely sets it, you know, in that 80s time period, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of references to songs from the time period. So it's got that 80s flavor to it, but it has enough there that it's just kind of universal things like you were saying of fitting in that today's kids will definitely relate to it as well. Maybe the cover designer thought about that for the Newberry sticker. Sneaky, I like it. You never know. It's interesting to see. I've seen blogs and things where they talk about like, where are they going to place it on the cover? And you never know. Well, you don't want to cover up something really important. You got to leave space for that potential. (laughs) 
So my last one is also in verse, so kind of a good way to, to compare two choices. I know there's been a lot of talk about this one this year. This one's Starfish by Lisa Phipp, and it's a contemporary story about a girl named Ellie who's been bullied for a very long time for being overweight by her classmates, but also probably more disturbingly by her brother and her mom. So it goes into how they've treated her in the past and then the current storyline where everything's all kind of coming to a head, but she's also going through therapy. So that's helping her kind of come to terms with what's happening and know how to cope with it through that therapy. And then she has some confrontations with her classmates, with her family. She does have some support. Her dad is supportive, but he's also kind of stuck in between, obviously, the family members. And then she has some good friends who are supportive as well. So it's not without hope. Like I said, I think that's kind of the main thing about middle grade is that there has to be some kind of hope in the book. It doesn't necessarily have to have a happy ending. I feel like YA can get away with being ultimately dark and and not having any hope, but middle grade can't. The kids aren't there yet. So the chapters written in verse are just gorgeous. I have seen some pushback on this book. I've seen quite a few librarians say that they feel like it's not realistic, like it goes too far in how she's bullied. But the author's note at the end says that, you know, everything in this book happened to the author as a child. It's inspired by her life. So it's not unrealistic. It all happened to her, which is terrible to think about. You feel like there must be other kids out there that really need this book. So, and, and kids that aren't going through it, but need it enabled in order to be able to relate to people that might be going through that. So it's, I thought it was really fantastic. And, you know, the way that she develops the characters and, and just the, the way that it's written in verse, I think is probably the most distinguished part about it, I would say. And some definite kid appeal there. I think a lot of kids will really like how her voice is, it's very straightforward and modern, but it does kind of have a little bit of a poetic twist to it too. So I think that makes just kind of the perfect method of delivery for this story. I'm not a huge reader of middle grade fiction, but I did read Starfish this year and I loved it. I was like cheering by the end. And like you said, the message of hope just ultimately like at the end, like kind of how you said it's modern, like the trend right now is like, it's okay to be who you are, own who you are, take up space. And that was just totally the message of this book, which I loved. So yes, thank you for mentioning that. I forgot to mention where the title comes from taking up space. So she calls it star fishing kind of for the space that she deserves. Yeah. Yeah, everybody does. So wonderful yeah loved it well okay how on a scale of one to ten you two how hard was it to pick only three titles to talk about today very difficult yeah it was very difficult and I was looking at some things this morning and I was like oh there's another one I want to read and there's another one so it was it was definitely a challenge yes for sure and it's a challenge whenever we recommend books to readers too because you're like I think they would really love this but also this and you don't want to like bog them down too much but hopefully they just keep coming back and can keep recommending them you know a good librarian when they get too excited about books and they give you too many (laughs) we try hard not to but I'm always picking up piles and piles of books you just can't help it (laughs) of course yes well we will be anxiously awaiting the announcement of the Newbery Award and all the other youth literature awards as well so viewers you can watch the 2022 American Library Association Youth Media Awards live it's going to be virtual on January 24th 2022 at 8am Eastern time so I'll be right at work that day which will be wonderful that's exactly what I'm going to be doing making sure we have all the winners probably ordering extra copies so 
A live stream of the Youth Media Awards will be available at ala.unikron.com. Thank you guys for joining us. Listeners, remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And viewers, follow the Claremont Library YouTube channel for this and other great library content. You can find all of the books we talked about in our catalog or in our digital collections via Libby, Hoopla, or Freeding. Thank you, Kara and Christine, for joining us today. We had a wonderful time, and we'll catch you all on our next Newberry podcast.